When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. Uh, today we are joined by our guest producer, Casey Pegro who just tossed us a, a thumbs up here, so I, I think that means we're good to go. This is like going back to the old days, isn't it? I mean, Casey yeah. was our producer for a long, long time, just prior to Noel. Yeah. Uh, he did this for a while. I think early, early, early on, mm-hmm. Jerry was in here with us, because she was probably just trying to watch over what we were up to. Right, to make sure that we could keep our rampant cursing yeah, off the air. Probably, because, but then uh, yeah. she, what, handed it over to rampant cursing. I'm just now yeah. listening to that. Um, but then she quickly handed it over to Casey, who was, uh, we were in his capable hands for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then Noel took over, but we're back to Casey today. So we have to, uh, I guess we're going to have to give him a nickname like we usually do, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Uh, oh, there's an easy one. Of course. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. Easy uh, Skyline. Of course. Right. But, uh, we'll, hmm, I don't know. We'll have to think about it on the way, maybe. Let's, let's go through this one. And maybe as we discover stuff, we can pick a nickname and then we'll look over at Casey who will throw us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> uh, Casey, by the way, also is a uh, rampant cursor. Uh, so- <laughs> yeah. He, he, sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's not yeah, true. So dirty. Sorry, Casey. So dirty. Uh, yeah, but we're glad, uh, we're glad you're back. Casey, and we're glad that you are back, listeners, or perhaps you're joining us for the first time. If you are joining us for the first time, there's a couple things that you should know before we get into the real heart of this episode. And what's that? Well, the first is that this is a request based on some stuff we kind of covered before. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, uh, we've got some dates here of previous podcasts that you may want to uh, pay attention to or at least look up afterwards. Sure. Um, the Nissan GTR podcast that we did that was two parts back in March of 2014, uh, so not that long ago, mm-hmm. and uh, that actually covered the uh, the most recent version of the Nissan GTR, and that's the R35 GTR, the six-gen cars only. Mm-hmm. So t- 2007 to present, uh, the one that you might see out on the streets around you today. I mean, the one that's very common now. Right. And common, I, I you know, it's tough the to say The one you're one. most likely to see if you live in the U.S. Okay, that's a better way to put it then. Um, then the, there's another one that I think is kind of related to this, and, and you'll understand why I say it, Ben, gray market cars. 
So, yes. so gray market cars, <laughs> we did this in June of 2014, so mm-hmm. also last year. And um, that's about, you know, the uh, European and Japanese market cars that are suddenly available, uh, or after embargo, I guess. Um, right. In Canada, it's after fi- a 15-year wait. In the U.S., it's after a 25-year wait. And um, I don't know, I think that plays into the story, because for sure these cars that we're going to talk about today are highly sought after by collectors and, and just enthusiasts, people that want mm-hmm. a... Uh, a performance vehicle on the street, and one person who really, really wants one of these is uh, is a guy. His name he's going to be jumping up and down when he hears this. I think, I hope, uh, Maladin. And I think we've mentioned Maladin before on this podcast. Yeah, so. longtime friend of the show, and uh, very patient with topic requests too. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it probably goes back farther than this, but yeah. I, the first note that I've got from Maladin about this is from back in November of 2014. So this is a year ago. And I gotta say, along the way, he's actually been very patient. Now, despite mm-hmm. what I'm gonna say here, because there's several emails from him that kind of hint at that he wants a, uh, a GTR podcast, a, a right, Nissan right. Skyline podcast in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where the focus is here. But, um, the first email in November 2014 says, uh, you know, here's, here's one that I'd, I'd like to request, but you haven't got to yet. The Nissan Skyline. More specifically, the R34 Skyline for me. When I was 11 years old, I saw Too Fast, Too Furious, and I saw the skyline in that movie. It's only in the movie like 10 minutes, but it captured me. It was the car that really got me interested in cars to begin with. And personally, that's my favorite, that's my dream car. One day I would love to own it. And as of this year, you can import them here in Canada, but it's way out of my price range at this point. I understand what he means, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I think it was like a $90,000 car when it was new. Wow. Uh, so it's just now becoming available in Canada to, to him, uh, the one that he wants in specific. And you know what? I should mention this, too. You know, he says that it kind of got me interested in the cars. Well, right mm-hmm. now, I know that Maladin works in a tire shop where they do aftermarket wheels and tires and some of this. This is all stuff that he has written to me over the year, I guess, you know, via sure. email. So where they do, like, basic mechanics, uh, mechanical maintenance stuff, like uh, lift kits and things like that. So he's kind of on his way to becoming a mechanic, and this is the car that kind of sparked that whole thing. So, of course, he's very, very interested in this. Well, in March, uh, he wrote back again and said, still no Skyline podcast, somewhere within... One of the other notes. And then I think in July of this year, there was another kind of little reminder of a, uh, a little nudge to maybe do this as well. And then we got another note from a guy named Chris V out of Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And he said that he would like to hear um, a show on Japanese tuner cars. And he said he always found it interesting how their four and six cylinder engines stack up to the bigger, um, you know, uh, bigger engined American and European counterparts. And also, he says, make sure that you mention the Skyline and NSX. So, again, mm-hmm. Skyline request as well. And then Maladin wrote in, and this is the last one, I promise. <laughs> Maladin wrote in again in just at the end of August uh, about our Fair Lady and Z car, the Datsun sports cars. Right. And said that he thought it was really a good podcast, but he said, again, I just can't wait to see <laughs> you guys what you guys come up with for the Skyline podcast. So, Lots of prompting along the way, and that doesn't mm-hmm. always work, but you know what? This is one of those topics that I feel like, I don't know why we've taken so long to get to it, really. Right. However, in our defense, uh, to borrow a line from the famous Heinz 57 company, uh, good things come to those who wait. Something about patience or ketchup. Something along that route. Something along that route. Yeah. So here we are, my friends, finally. Uh, the waiting is over. We are going to dive into the Nissan Skyline as well as the GTR. Yeah, now this could get very tricky here. Now right. what we'll do is I think we're gonna we're gonna upfront state that what we are covering is really the the high performance version of the Skyline vehicles, not 
the entire skyline because not, the entire not the whole history of it. <laughs> yeah, the the whole history of the skyline, and we, we can briefly touch on it, I guess. But but it spans fifty eight years at this point, and that's way too long for us to really delve into um, with this one because we really want to focus on the high performance cars. So right. 1957 is the beginning of the Nissan Skyline line for Nissan. Right, yeah. But uh, before that, they were originally produced by the Prince Motor Company. Yeah, the Prince Sedan, I think, was mm-hmm. the uh, the predecessor to that mm-hmm. vehicle. And here's here's another example of how confusing this could get. So if we were to follow the Nissan Skyline all the way through present day, they're on something like the, I think it's like the 12th or maybe even the 13th generation at this point. I, I yeah. believe it's 12th. The confusing thing is that within this big umbrella of Skyline cars, there's this smaller, uh, you know, line of high performance vehicles, and they're only on their sixth generation of cars. So mm-hmm. the generations don't exactly match up, and you'll hear that in our descriptions of the GTR at some point along the way. And it wasn't right. always called the GTR, by the way. So that's another little uh, <laughs> twist to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But and so you can see where the generations thing can get really confusing between the Skyline and the GTR production. But right. Um, one more quick thing, and then we can move on. <laughs> a lot of these uh, these stats, these specs for these vehicles are given in metric horsepower, which is described as PS. Right. And metric horsepower is very, very close to British horsepower, horsepower which we tend to go by. So metric horsepower, if you have one PS, which is a, a metric horsepower, that's equal to about .98 British horsepower. So it's very, very close to equal and I think we'll just kind of stick with that. So, like, um, for example, 280 PS is equal to 276 British horsepower. Mm-hmm. So if we stick, if we say a number like 280, let's stick with that's 280 horsepower, 276. It's very, very close. It's not really going to matter much in the in the big scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So can we re- agree to that? Yeah, we can totally agree with that. And uh, listeners, we hope that's okay with you. It'll be ballpark figures. Yeah, ballpark, but but very, very close. Very, very close. Yeah, it's like, a close uh, game. It's an infield number. So let's go ahead and start then with the very first Skyline GTR. Uh, internally, Nissan called this the PGC-10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this comes out in 1969, February of 1969. Yeah, public debut at the uh, 15th annual Tokyo Motor Show back in 1969. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool looking little car, but the thing is, this is a four-door sedan that they started with. And that's right. kind of unexpected for a lot of people. That's they want, the big change. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting that they would start with a four-door sedan initially, but later um, throughout the production. Now, it started in 69 and went to 1972 for this first gen. Yeah, and then it wasn't around 70 that they went to a coup? 71, I think. 71? I, I think. Okay. 70, 71, maybe, maybe 70 as a 71 model year. Might be a model year, yeah. yeah. Probably, but it had a relatively small engine, a two-liter dual overhead cam, inline-six mm-hmm. engine. See, now, there you go. Dual overhead cam engine... Inline six. Now, we talked about that with the Z car. I was wondering why they didn't do that, but I think it was a cost issue or something. Yeah. Um, anyways, so it's what they had available. So right. a two-liter dual ever cam, inline six, about 160 horsepower, hmm. 87 pound-feet of torque. So this was a, uh, I mean, a, a strong little car, especially for 1969 and the size that it was. A five-speed manual, rear-wheel drive. These are all going to be rear-wheel drive. And in fact, most of them are going to hang on to the inline six design all the way through present day, all the way up until we get to the uh, the current one, uh, which is the one that we had our, our two-parter on already. You know, and I think that it was, uh, for that first gen, Scott, I think we're right. It was a 71 model released in 70, mm-hmm. and uh, the code for that internally was the KPG C10. All right. Makes so, sense. Yeah. So uh, 
one of the combinations or one of the names that people would use for both the um, PGC and the KPG, the you know both the coupe and the sedan, is they would call it the hakosuka uh, combination of the Japanese word for box and the pronounced abbreviation of skyline suka. So mm. it'd be like suka kairai. I'm butchering the Japanese, uh, but. The, the, the idea here is that it's a, it's a portmanteau. It's like the box skyline. Now, you know how close that is to the name of the designer and engineer of this car? Yeah. yeah very, exactly. very close. Yeah. Now, the skyline, so the, the designer and engineer, his name was, and I'm going to, oh boy. Should I try it or do you want to try it? Uh, you know, let's, uh, let's both give it a shot or I'll take, I'll take the bullet if you want. <laughs> you want me to take I'll, that I'll give it a try. Bullet? How about that? <laughs> Shinakairo Sakure. Mm-hmm. Uh, from inception. So that's the guy that started this whole thing. That's the guy that, uh, designed and engineered this vehicle right from the very beginning, you know, with a team. I understand that there's a whole right. team, but he's the, the main, the primary point on this whole thing. He remained the chief influence on this car until he died all the way in 2011. So, uh, working on this car from 1969, basically through 2011, the mm-hmm. modern, the, the one that you see right now, he worked on. Um, so I think that's impressive when uh, someone sticks with a project like that. When they uh, they put them on that and they allow them to stay there and really uh, become familiar with the thing over the decades. Yeah, it it helps quite a bit. And and then uh, do we want to move to the second gen? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so the second gen comes out as we said, uh, seventy three, and uh, it was previewed beforehand Tokyo Motor Show in seventy two, I believe. Uh, so this had. Uh, this had a lot in common with the first, but it, then it had some some differences, right? One of those would be uh, that the first generation, if we go back a little, the very first Skylines had a – or the very first GTRs, rather, had a semi-trailing arm strut suspension. This had a semi-trailing ring arm setup, and then they added some aerodynamic parts, mm-hmm. pretty minor stuff. And I got to say, yeah. I mean, take a look at the second-gen GTRs and tell me what you think. The 1972 to 1977 cars, the uh, the specific one they pointed – or they show you here – has the uh, the you know the uh, the racing mirrors on the fenders, yeah, uh, the blacked yeah. out wheels. It's uh-huh. a white vehicle because I think that's the uh, Japanese national racing color or something like that. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute mm-hmm. too. But um, I I personally think this is one of my favorite designs of the older GTRs. I really do like yeah. this one. Yeah, maybe not my absolute favorite, but but just tell me what you think when you see it. I mean, the second gen GTRs they look really really cool, and the thing is, there's very very few of them in the world too. Yeah. Very few. Now, this was a, what, five-year production run from 1972 to 1977, so roughly five years. How many cars do you think were made? Well, you probably know the answer already. Uh, you know what? Why, why, why don't we, uh, why, why don't we... Let's let the listeners spend four seconds thinking about it. How about that? Yeah, that's the thing. It's not All fair right, so, if you ask me. So, so five-year production run, this is a, uh, you know, performance car from Nissan. How many, how many do you think they made? Now, you know... Uh, it's kind of a new thing for them, relatively new. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll wait. Do you have your guess, listeners? I hope so. It's pretty low. Okay, listeners, so you've got your chance. You've got your answer in your head. Uh, the answer is very, very low. Uh, so low, in fact, that uh, if this were a matter of homologation, you know, when you have to produce enough cars to count as a production car for racing, they wouldn't pass mon- muster 
I don't know why I almost said monster. Uh, oh, well, you know, that's coming up too. Yeah, they wouldn't cut the yeah. mustard. But, uh, that's, uh, folks, we're looking at a grand total of just under 200 cars. Yeah. Something like 197 cars mm-hmm. total yeah. in five years. So this is a very rare bird right here. If you can find one of these, snap it up, but I doubt if you will. I mean, it's, it's one, it's a, it's a, uh, Oh, it's a needle in a haystack, really. Yeah, congratulations. If you found one of these, you're either at a museum, at your uh, very wealthy car car buddy's house. Yeah. Right? So you may ask yourself, you know, why so low production numbers? You know, why why they only make 197 in that five years? You know, like not like yeah. the previous version, not like the, the the version after that. What happened along the mm-hmm. way? So there's a uh, there's a root cause of this whole thing. And what do you think it has been? If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Well, I can I can say with a fair amount of certitude, Scott, it's the gas crisis. Yeah, exactly. It loomed its ugly head, not just here in the States, but in Japan as well. So this one kind of spans the decade here, you know, between uh, the beginning of the first fuel crisis of the 70s and the uh, and the second fuel crisis of the 70s and the late 70s. So mm-hmm. uh, this one was kind of in trouble right from the very beginning. And it's not that it was a bad car or anything. Uh, it had a lot in common with the first one, Jen, as you said, um, mm-hmm. different styling. Um, but there just wasn't a lot of demand for high-performance sports car in the early 1970s. And I know that's a, a little bit contradictory to what we said in the uh, 240Z podcast, but uh, it was a different thing. I mean, uh, it was okay. a victim of the times. And then there is a lull in production, and it's about a decade until we see the third gen of the GTR. Ah, but you know what? It's not really truly 
the third gen. And I'll tell you uh, why. And there's okay. a, there's a, there's one key reason. And I looked at this for a long time before I could figure out what they're talking about because we do skip from, uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. There's an eight year production gap, mm-hmm. uh, that goes until 1985. And this one they don't label as the third generation car according to, uh, I'll see, where am I at here? I'm at nissanskyline.com yeah, where they've got the history of this whole thing. Oh, great. Yeah. It lays out the whole history for us here, but. The third gen, or this one, the R31, the first one to be designated is R31, uh-huh. and the numbers count up to 35 where we are now. Right. This is not a third gen car because this is strictly built as a homologation car for racing. Which goes back to what we were saying. So then, yeah, this is a question I had too, because if you look at Skyline.com and if you talk to, uh, if you talk to some other Skyline historians and stuff, what they'll typically say is that one doesn't count. The third gen started in '89. Yeah, but that, but what you're talking about specifically is again that practice wherein for a racing car to count as a production car, a certain number of models must be manufactured. Yeah, and in this case, it was 800 units. So they built 800 units to allow homologation into Group A touring car racing in Japan. And uh, so again, an, another very limited production run. Um, it, it, again. You know, a strong car. It was an inline six, you know, as you'll find out through most of its history until we get to the current one. But mm-hmm. um, 210 horsepower for the street version, the race car version. Um, you know, of course, that's the whole reason they built these street car versions, the 800 that we're talking about, the street right. car versions. Um, they had 200, 210 horsepower. The, the race car versions had 430 horsepower uh, when they were in Group A uh, trim. So they had way bigger turbos. They had, um, you know, bigger uh, front intercooler as well, front-mounted intercooler yeah. uh, to keep everything running smoothly. It was just a, it was a, a an amazing vehicle, really. But again, only eight hundred streetcars were ever built. Right, and those those aren't even all of the those are the specs, and you can already tell just from the specs alone how different these are. But the, the it also had a number of different new technologies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, let's see, we talked about. We just mentioned the bigger turbo. Right. We mentioned that it had a uh, a bigger front-mounted intercooler. Mm-hmm. What else was going on? Uh, we had the uh, injection system, right? Uh, and it had these smaller intake runners. Uh, I think I know what you're going to say yeah. here. A, a dozen of those. That's the the Nissan induction control system. Twelve runner, twelve yeah. intake runners yeah. for yeah. a six-cylinder engine. Now I think, and. It, Maybe I'm giving something away. I'm going to wait. I'm going to hang on to this little bit of info. And I'm, and I'm not entirely sure if this shows up in this car for the first time ever or not. So I'll hang on to that info until we get to it. But Because um, they, they kind of hint that it goes back previous generations when they tell us. They finally tell us about it. Right. Um, so, okay, there's a b- – between this vehicle that's not really the third gen and the actual third gen, uh, there is another two-year production gap. So you're going to see along the way that there's a, a few of these uh, that happen. Now, this two-year gap – Allows them to create the third generation vehicle that is launched in 1989, which they call the R32 GTR. Now, this mm-hmm. is the first time GTR appears in the in the uh, actual name. Yeah, the numeric designation yeah. for the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, so this is also this is also the vehicle that racing fans will notice came to dominate Group A racing. Uh, so originally what they attested was a twin turbocharged 2,350cc uh, board-stroked version of the RB20 engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this made about 313 horsepower, uh, had a rear-wheel drive tra- uh, powertrain, drivetrain, excuse me. Um, 
But under Group A regulations, a turbocharged engine has to multiply its engine displacement by 1.7. And that put the new Skyline in the 4,000 cc class. So they had to back it down. Yeah. So what we ended up with was a 2.6 liter twin turbo 280 horsepower version for the for the street car, I should mm-hmm. say, and an all and of course an all wheel drive system, which is kind of cool, uh, which was designed by Nismo, you know, the in house, yeah. um, um, I guess aftermarket, if you want to call it that, the in house <laughs> aftermarket company. <laughs> we've it seems like we've talked about we Nismo have, yeah, in the past Nismo too. Showed up. Um, and so I guess maybe what we should say is that they in 1989 they had to meet the, this requirement, this homologation requirement of 5,000 units mm-hmm. uh, to allow for racing, but. They they got this in, incredible push from the motoring press and from uh, from pu- from the public uh, that they they wanted a street version of this car for themselves and and five thousand just weren't enough which is incredible I mean when you think back to you know the second gen where they only made one hundred ninety seven cars mm-hmm. uh, now they're saying we're going to give you five thousand street cars and they're saying no that's not enough we need more so Nissan decided to allow an unlimited production run which went on sale beginning in 1989, August of 1989, and, of course, with the 2.6-liter twin-turbo that we just mentioned and um, the all-wheel drive system from Nismo and all that, it's all put in product, put into production for the R32 Nissan Skyline GTR, and they built 43,394 units when it was all done. That's crazy. That's a yeah. huge ramp-up in production. Can you imagine yeah. launching a car that you think you're only going to build 5,000 of? Right. How expensive that program would seem to you. Yeah. And then you realize, I mean, of course, it's expensive to build them, but I mean, you're going to recoup a lot of that money mm-hmm. with the sale of 43,300 uh, vehicles versus 5,000. And we should note we're not, we're talking about the, specifically the, the GTR, uh, not, the GTR R32. We're not talking about the, um, we're not talking about the Nismo, uh, the GTR Nismo on 1990, cause that had, like a very a much smaller production number. Small, uh, really? Okay. Yeah, it had like 560 units. Oh, okay, for that specific model. For that specific model, Got and it. that's because uh, that's because they had to hit the evolution models regulation homologation again. They had to have over 500, so they only sold 500 of those to the public. But then they took 60, and those 60 were dedicated to turn into to race cars. Got it. Okay. So just that model alone, just because we talked about the Nismo earlier, I want I want listeners to know. Yeah, and this was successful too. I mean, yeah. it, oh, one quick thing, you know, I mentioned earlier that the uh, the national racing color Japan is is white. So there was an an above average number of white GTRs produced in this in this third generation, and mm-hmm. that's why you'll find that most of them are white cars, mm-hmm. um, or at least white from the factory. Um, and by the way, it was very successful. Yes, um, had yeah. five consecutive championship wins in the all Japanese. Uh, touring car championships and over 200 race wins total, uh, plus the unofficial lap record for a production car at the Nürburgring. Uh, this is again third generation. This is going back to the uh, late 80s, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, not bad. I mean, I didn't realize they were competing in that arena back then, but I guess they were. We hear about it a lot now, uh, but I didn't know it was kind of a thing for them to do even back then. Right? Yeah, and it's it's strange when you think about that. I'm gonna once again give a shout out to our Nurburgring podcast. This will be the last time on the show that I shout out that podcast because I'm sure longtime listeners have heard us talk about it before. But that's <laughs> just such to, a cool place. It always seems to come up when we talk about these uh, these high end sports cars because that's yeah. where they take them now. 
um, over the last decade or so, it seems like. But I guess they've been doing it for a lot longer than we thought. And oh, yeah. I would bet that in that podcast, I mean, again, this stuff kind of comes and goes out of my mind, but <laughs> I would bet that we talked about stuff that was happening in the late 80s and early 90s. Probably. Oh, yeah. Of course we were. It's got a long history. Yep, I know. So, um, okay. You know, one thing I want to say about this one, though? What's that? One one description here that I thought was pretty uh, pretty cool was kind of like a what's it like to drive this thing on the streets? Uh, because you're thinking this is kind of a race car. Is it is it tame? How is it you know difficult to uh, difficult to drive? They say, and I'll, I'll quote this here. It says it's basically a racing car for the road, and it's not quite as idiot proof as the newer models, which is both good and bad. In the right hands, the R32 is extremely fast, but requires a lot more skill than the aim and fire R34 and R35. That's the current and previous gen. Mm-hmm. Um, they also say that it's not quite as forgiving, but much more rewarding and potentially a lot faster. Hmm. Interesting, huh? This is interesting. Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, I've got, I've got a side story too before we, before we move on. Okay. Just, just a real quick one. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jalopnik. Yeah. And they have some fantastic auto writing there if you want to, if you want to read some really cool kind of off the beaten path auto stories. And there's this one, there's this one writer who has this, um, pretty funny but also interesting story. His name's Doug DeMuro. And his story starts with him asking, asking his readers, uh, what, what car he should buy and review and what he should do. So he ends up going, uh, gray market and getting a Skyline, a GTR, uh, specifically an R32. And he, <laughs> he, um, he, he's got some hilarious stories about how he, fi- how he traveled to a shop in Richmond. It's called Japanese Classics or something. Mm-hmm. Managed to get this. Had to drive it 250 miles back to his house. Mm-hmm. Uh, figured out it was a five speed and not a six on the way when he almost went into reverse. Ah. <laughs> and because uh, he didn't know, you know, like, sure. a lot about it. But this guy is a very knowledgeable car guy. The, this is just one in an installment of stories. One of the strangest is where he takes it to a Nissan dealer for service and he's thinking, man, you know, the mechanics are going to go nuts for this, yeah. right? This is, this is relatively rare in the States. So, uh, people are going to love it. It's well maintained. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not a jalopy or anything. And he takes it in and he's surprised that the service department doesn't seem to care. Really? Yeah. They, the, the, like they've seen it before, huh? They, yeah, and he's trying to figure this out. He's like, you guys, what is, what is going on? Why don't these people understand this Stradivarius I'm bringing in here? You know? <laughs> it's funny. It's probably a right hand drive car too, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. 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 Uh, that alone makes it unique. And so, uh, he, he said, uh, this is funny because he alludes to another story where he says, uh, I thought the dealership would recognize me. He said there were only three real ways this could go. And he says, I thought the dealership would recognize me. It's what happened last year when I took my Ferrari to CarMax for an appraisal. <laughs> this is kind of like a uh, don't you know who I am moment. Because this guy knows a whole lot. He knows his stuff. Yeah. And he said, number two, maybe they look at the car and say they won't service this because uh, this is not, you know, a, this is a, a right-hand drive. Sure. It might be a little off the beaten path. Uh, number three, a specialty right. aftermarket type place. Right, that, right, yeah. exactly. Number three, they freak out about the car, get excited, everybody gets a picture in the driver's seat, um, and 
you know, uh, he can't leave. He's like, I, maybe I can't leave because there's some other guy who's coming on to work early because he has to see this. Yeah. Which I think is, which I think is cool. But ultimately what he says when he, when he gets it service, when he gets it out there, um, he, he was surprised that they just handled it and he thought, well, maybe they're just so inundated. I think somewhere in the story, and correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere in the story, I think he has someone who comes into the dealership with their license plate that got mailed to them, asking the service department to get this, Scott, put it on their car. Hmm. Really? That just seems like the most elementary thing. You go into the dealership to have your license what? plate put on the car? Yeah, I don't know. That's how, that made wow. me read twice. Wow. But anyhow, he to says. Learn how to operate a screwdriver. Yeah, so maybe they just were freaking out. But anyway, he said it finally <laughs> happened. Finally happened when he snapped a few photos of his skyline at the dealer just to, you know, prove to the readers. I actually went there. Yeah. One salesperson comes out. Somebody else comes out. Somebody else comes out, and eventually, even though it's the last day of the month, as the author says, and they're trying to get their, you know, their quotas and uh, make everything square for the month, uh, there's a bunch of salespeople hanging there, and they're mobbing around. And they're like, mm-hmm. How, how'd you get this? Where'd you get it? Can I get a picture in so the driver's seat? So it just took, like, one person to notice that it was unique or different, and well, then other people kind of thought, well, what is that person looking at? Well, maybe the service, um, maybe the service place was just demoralized, you know? With all those license plate changes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's it. So been. check out that story by Doug DeMuro if you want to hear some interesting uh, Nissan and, information. And uh, you can also find out about gray market cars, as we said in our podcast, and and what it takes to bring one of these here. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, when we're talking about these, and I, this is something that I was thinking about on the way. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. In the early 1990s, I was working at a, a production studio in Michigan, and there was a guy who worked there. He was a graphic designer, and he was telling me about a friend of his that had an illegal skyline in the United States, and he got a ride in it at some point. And it's like one of those cars, they, they had brought it over, and I don't know if it came from Canada or what, you know, that it was like, it was legal there, but not yet legal mm-hmm. in the United States, because we're in Detroit. Right. And you can get across the border and something like that fairly easy if you don't, you know, if someone's not really paying attention to what's going on. It's not a car that's being sold or anything like that, but yeah. um, it, he he had somehow had a ride in this car, and it was like just lightning fast. And of course, these are cars that we were seeing in video games at the time, you know, in the early 1990s, you know, this type of skyline that was like the... Uh, you know, the, the JDM market cars that we couldn't get here in the States or in North America, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a like this mystique around these these vehicles, these Skyline vehicles for a long, long time. And there still is, really, because even right now, Ben, you know, with our 25-year embargo on, on these types of vehicles for the, for the gray market, even, we can't even get them for 25 years in the, in the States. So right now, we're able to get just cars from 1990 and older, so we're just now into the third generation of these is what we can get. The one we just talked about, mm-hmm. that's the one that we can get. Now, of course, the modern version is being sold in the U.S., but that's the first time the Skyline was sold uh, to the U.S. market initially, right from the, from the get-go. And mm-hmm. the other confusion around this whole thing, and then we'll get to the fourth gen, I promise, <laughs> that's Maladin's favorite, but is that really the first time that we saw them, Outside of um, you know, outside of the the Skyline GTR, the first time that we saw the Skyline series of vehicles, you know, not the GTR versions, was the Infinity G cars. If you remember, mm-hmm. um, so you know, cars like the um, the G thirty five and the G thirty seven, and you know, those vehicles, those are actually Skyline vehicles that are badged differently. Those are the Infinity badge vehicles, but not part of the high performance. Uh, well, they are high performance, but not part of the, the Skyline line like we're talking about right now. It's, right. Boy, it gets more and more confusing as we get into this, doesn't <laughs> as it? As we get deeper into yeah, the rabbit I, hole. I apologize. I mean, it's really complex to, to sort all this out in in our paper notes here. Um, so you want to move on to the fourth gen? Yes. Finally. All right. Yes. The moment has come, though I'm not sure if, was was this one Land's favorite? You know what? I think I misspoke earlier when I said this next one was his favorite. I think I think we're getting to his favorite. He's the, a 34 uh, guy, right? He is a 34 guy, yeah. So it, okay. uh, he's talking about fifth gen. I think right. I made a mistake and said it was fourth. Oh, well, well, we'll walk through the fourth because it's important to know anyway. But we're getting there, Milad. We're on the way. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, fourth generation, 1995, 1998, this is a successor to the 
the R32, it's got a lot in common with its predecessors. So. Nearly identical. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we just talk about what's what's different. Well, it's um, uh, not that much, well, honestly. Well, maybe a couple of things. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. A couple things, and I'll mention them here now. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, I guess there was an oil issue. Yeah, it had a weak oil pump drive collar. Yeah, from the uh, carryover from the R32, so they improved that. They also improved um, the intake cam, which mm-hmm. increased the torque a bit on the engine. So, yeah. um, again, nearly identical to the, the powertrain from the R32 cars. Same turbos, the same five-speed gearbox, but um, they did improve the synchros in that gearbox. So mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit stronger, a little bit better uh, as far as shifts go. Yeah, uh, they also, at the same time, they released, uh, the GTR and then the GTR V-Spec. They also released the V-Spec in one model. Uh, and so that had some changes that were similar to the R32 in one. They took out the ABS, the AC, the sound system, rear wiper, trunk carpet. Uh, and it had a slightly revi- revised engine. Hmm. So, so there are variants. For each of these gens, too. Yeah. Right? yeah, and this one critical note that we need to make here for the fourth-gen car, and this, again, 1995 to 1998, this is where the car got its Godzilla nickname. So you've probably heard the car referred to as Godzilla, and why would they call it Godzilla? Well, the Australians are responsible for that, yes. because the Australians said, well, this is like the, this is the monster coming over from Japan, uh, so, of course, yeah. we're going to name it Godzilla. So here's where this all began, is that, you know, in Australia, um, it, it came over and it competed in the Australian V8 supercar series. And it was just far and away superior to the mm-hmm. to the Fords and the Holdens that were in that series. And yeah. so, you know, it was it was inevitable that they were going to change the rules in order to outlaw this vehicle. And that's what they did exactly. But um, so that they kind of uh, legislated it out of competition in a way, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Godzilla nickname kind of stuck with this car. And it yeah. has ever since. They still yeah. call it Godzilla. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's spread with it. That's the thing about a good nickname, man. You can't keep it down. Yeah, and this one, again, competed at the, uh, the Nürburgring and turned the, uh, the fastest production car lap again. Um, 13, again, 13 miles, 172 corners, just under eight minutes. I got it. What? Casey, Godzilla, Pegram. I like it. I like it too. It's a, it's a little less on the nose than mm-hmm. Skyline. Uh, so yeah, we already see the, racing domination here. And if you're a Skyline fan or a GTR fan, rather, you've read some of the glowing reviews about the handling uh, and the the movement of this vehicle. Yes. And by the fifth generation, you know, the R34 GTR, which again is Maladin's favorite here. We'll, we'll yeah, get here to we it. Are. Um, they have made some improvements to the car in order to make it handle even better. For one thing they did, or one thing that they did rather, was they made it a slightly shorter car, uh, front to rear yeah. than the previous GTRs. And not only that, but they pushed the front wheels closer to the front bumper so that they're, uh, they're more out on the corners, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So it uh, handles a little bit more crisp, I guess. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, in, in 1989, or 1999 when this thing was launched, cause it says it was, uh, 1999 to about 2002, yeah. uh, when they built this. Um, I, I found this pretty incredible, really. And they were talking about some of the, um, some of the updated features for the R34, you know, um, in addition to what they had in the, in the fourth gen. Mm-hmm. And one of the main new features that was added was a 5.8 inch 
LCD multifunction display yeah. in the center of the dashboard, and it displayed seven different live readings of the engine and vehicle stats, like the turbocharger mm-hmm. boost pressure, the mm-hmm. oil and water temperature, and a lot of other stuff. Too. Yeah, and the Victory spec model even had two extra features, intake and exhaust gas temperature. Very cool. Now, again, this is 1999, so I'm impressed that they had that in that vehicle. Now, I know that screen's not all that big or anything, especially when you think about like what Tesla screen's like. It's... That's like a 65-inch television right in the middle of your dash, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I'm not. I'm not over-exaggerating. It's no, a, it's, it's a huge. It's, it's a, a TV. It's an 84-inch screen right in the middle of your dash <laughs> uh, in a Tesla. Pretty, the entire uh, the entire windshield actually, if you push full screen mode, the entire windshield turns into the uh, a screen. Exactly, right? and uh, yeah. and it even has the, the ability to expand from there, so it gets bigger. Right. Yeah. Because if you open the doors, you you really get the widescreen format yeah. that you need. It's a big screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very big screen, and we're not we're not joking. It's not huge. at all. No, 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 no not at all. That's uh, it's not hyperbole. No, uh, but as we were saying, what is also completely true is uh, that these some of the shortening, this body shortening, comes from customer concerns. People who thought who wrote in and said the R thirty three was too bulky. Yeah, and uh, and also you know in addition to that is is these years of refinement through racing things that they found right. out things that they decided that uh, you know would be uh, give them a competitive advantage I suppose mm-hmm. and that's one thing so at this point and this article says that you know it's gone through eleven years of competitive racing and testing uh, that's fourteen years to me I mean since uh, since nineteen eighty five I think is when they began racing in this thing so I'm not exactly sure where the 11 years comes in, but maybe that's more accurate with the production gaps or something like that. But I see it as 14 years. So a lot of uh, racing history under its belt at this point. And here's the thing that I was kind of holding back on earlier. And I'm not sure where this comes about because it says, you know, previous generations had this. And I don't know where it started, but the throttle chamber for this engine. Now, again, maybe we should just say this again. It's a straight six again or still maybe. Uh, Dual Everett cam, four valves per cylinder, twin turbo still. Uh, but this is a, this is interesting. The throttle chamber has six individual throttle valves, one per cylinder, uh, which then kind of allow the engine. <laughs> this is this is a weird way to say it, but it isolates each engine engine cylinder from the rest, and it kind of acts like its own, uh, like a like a six individual six cylinder engines rather than one complete six cylinder engine. Now that's that's a weird way to say that because you would mm, think that I think it's a good way to say it, but it sounds crazy. Yeah, it does. I mean it all works together, I get it, but they're saying that it allows it to operate independently based on need. And I, I get that too. It's it's a, just a, a different way to handle it. And I, I really didn't know that that was the way that they, they did this. Um also, and this is a big one, they really lowered the weight for this car. Now there's a, a six speed gearbox, so that's probably going to add some weight. Um, it's also a four-wheel uh, drive vehicle, which was designed, you know, right from the start for street and track use. And what's different about this one was that they designed it for um, high-speed use. Now, up until this point in history, most four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive systems for cars were really off-road systems. They were mm-hmm. they were they were um, geared or or uh, set up, I guess, for off-road conditions more so than on the track or on the street. And this is where this one is different. It's engineered. Specifically for high-speed use on pavement, and and that's different. But I mentioned the weight thing, and uh, they went to some extremes. They used uh, you know lightweight alloy wheels, which saved them. I think it was seven point seven kilograms, and they used a rear diffuser that was made of um, carbon fiber, which was pretty innovative, I guess, at the time. I mean, very expensive, you know, if nothing else, back in nineteen ninety nine, and <laughs> they went all the way to the trouble of of creating lightweight audio speakers for this car. 
that's how that's at the, yeah. the level of detail they went to because they know that street you know people for street use are going to want you know a sound system in the car they're going to have speakers and things like that unless you dump it all out for racing or whatever but um they went uh, went to the the trouble of creating lightweight audio speakers for this thing right at the factory i find yeah. stuff like that fascinating yeah the uh the the strange thing that happens when you're Building a street car that is also potentially a race car, mm-hmm. depending on the specs and depending on the, the tweaks you put into it. Uh, the strange thing that happens is that for people who don't want a race car, but end up getting, you know, just the street car version, mm-hmm. they find that this thing has some unexpected zip, some crazy good handling. I think that's part of why I think there were a lot of people who weren't necessarily race fans. Well, got the, a hold the of factory this. knows what's going to happen. You know, the, the factory gonna, knows exactly what's going to happen. You're going to take it to the autocross track on the weekends. You're going to take it out to the local uh, road course and, and, you know, put it through its paces or something like that. So they, they know what you're going to do with it. It's just, uh, you know, I, I just find it fascinating when they go to that level of extreme when they, when they design things. Like um, they also talked about a new type of aluminum that was used for the front wings and bonnet. Uh, bonnet. Okay, the hood. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but interesting that you know they they do things like that on the on the production vehicles well. So I th- I think that's great. And again, this one had around 280 uh, metric horsepower, which is again 276 horsepower. And uh, let's see. Oh yeah, this was right. Vladin, remember we said uh, he's kind of interested in getting one of these eventually. Maybe as a gray market car. Up yeah, in Canada. yeah, yeah. He's in Canada, right? Yeah. Um, I believe the so. Initial price of this thing was almost $90,000 when it was brand new. So it's expensive. I mean, a really expensive car to begin with. I don't know what the gray market cost of something like this would be. Um, but man, this is a, this is a strong, strong car this specific year. And when I say strong, I mean, the, the output of this engine was something like 107 and a half horsepower per liter. And that was 16 years ago, Ben. That's pretty strong. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the target now, really. I mean, Ooh. that seems like what they're, what they're trying to do now. Uh, with these smaller cars, but, and also high revving and the red line was 8,000. Yeah. Uh, that, oh, that had been so good. That, that had sounded so good. Well, you know, in 2002, uh, when Nissan released their final production model, it was called the Skyline GTR V-Spec 2 NUR, and that NUR is for the Nurburgring. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was a monster. Talk about, talk about calling something Godzilla, man. 450 horsepower. How much? Four hundred and fifty horsepower. Four hundred and fifty, and I'm I'm supposing here that it's still the all-wheel drive system that was uh, that was in that um, six wheel. Or, sorry, six speed manual. Yeah, um, and it's yeah, it's uh, they had larger um, they had larger turbochargers because again, this is a nurse specific. Sure, uh, this is nurse specific. Other than the addition of, and that, this is a different engine, you know, but um, this this four hundred and fifty was. Um, Due to tuning, you had to tune it to that. So when, when Nissan was releasing this vehicle at the time, it was advertised as having 276 horsepower due to those car industry norms that they were under. Sure. But it actually had more like 330. Oh, yeah. Left the factory. You know, we've heard a few cars like that where they kind of, uh, you know, they, they hedge on the numbers a bit to allow it to be, uh, to be actually built. Uh, you know, so they don't get they don't get restricted before it's even put into production, and uh, you know it's funny that along the way you know these cars that have what 276 horsepower, but the engineers that put it together know that when when you said you could tune it up to that point, mm-hmm. they know what it's capable of. So that right. so that you add uh, you know 
these three parts and you're suddenly up to 450 horsepower and the engine doesn't have to be torn down to handle that. The engineers know they can take it inside. It's, it's built to that spec or that standard. Um, mm-hmm. you know, knowing, knowing exactly what they're going to do. And plus, it kind of leaves the door open for, like, their official aftermarket parts, the Nismo division, to yeah. sell these, these, uh, you know, upgraded parts to the owners of these vehicles. You know, the, uh, 40,000 people that buy them or whatever right. the number yeah, is, the production, yeah, 5,000 or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very smart thing that they do. You know, it's, I think it's not just smart from a financial perspective, but it's also smart from, um, I guess there's something more intangible about it. It rewards loyalty. It's something that you can participate in as a, a creative force. Too. Sure. Yeah. Brand loyalty is a huge thing among, uh, among, well, of course, the, the brand itself wants to build brand loyalty among its users, among the people that buy their vehicles and the people that, uh, you know, that have these vehicles. They're, they're I'm very pro GTR, I guess, by the time, right. you know, they've had the experience in one and they get they're really into the aftermarket tuning and mm-hmm. they, uh, maybe get into communities where they can get into chats and forums and, um, you know, share photographs with other, other owners and they can, uh, you know, go to the, the weekend car shows and, uh, it just becomes a lot of fun. Car clubs, of course. So I yeah. hope, uh, I really do hope that, uh, the Maladin gets one of these, an R34 someday. Um, I know that maybe not right now is the time, but uh, but hang in there. You you know, everybody's got a dream of a vehicle they want to get, and this one seems like it's achievable. It really does. Yeah, and uh, the, you know we're we're cutting it short here, though. We but, are. It pains but, me to say it, but the only reason we're cutting it short is because the next one on the line in the lineup is the R35, and that's the one we've covered in a two-part episode, as right. we mentioned. Uh, you know, when was that? That was in. Uh, go back to March of 2014, and you can find that on carstuffshow.com and, yeah. uh, you know, all of our podcasts are there. You can find every single podcast we've ever done on our website, carstuffshow.com. If you want to uh, write to us or check out some of the stuff we do that hasn't made it to the air for one reason or another, then you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are carstuffhsw. And if you want to take a page from uh, the rest of your fellow listeners... And write to us directly. Uh, it might take a while for us to get get back to you. <laughs> yes, you might, you might have guessed from the beginning of this episode, right? <laughs> but all of our best suggestions uh, come from listeners just like you. So do us a favor and let us know what you'd like to hear. You can write to us directly at carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.